Quick question for you. Are you a Federal Access member yet? If you're a government contractor, you need a Federal Access account. You can get started today with a free membership. Just visit federal-access.com forward slash game changers. Free members get access to about 20 documents and templates as well as our video training playbooks. More importantly, this gets you in the RSM Federal ecosystem and makes you part of our community. So go grab your free account today at federal-access.com forward slash game changers. Now let's hop into this episode. Welcome to Game Changers for Government Contractors. Game Changers is dedicated to helping you position for and win more government contracts. And now your hosts, Josh and Mike. Hey everybody, Mike Lejeune here with Game Changers for Government Contractors. I've got John Barker here with me today. John is going to be talking about price to win, but before we jump into that, John, why don't you take a minute and tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Michael. I really appreciate it. And I love absorbing all your podcasts. My name is John Barker. I'm originally from the DC metro area and uh, now reside in Wilmington, North Carolina. I've been working for government contractors for about 21 years now, uh, originally in the program control function, and then switched over to contract administration and kind of really found my calling within contract administration, specifically proposals and, and more specifically pricing. So that's a little bit about me. I've been working for companies uh, on the private side, uh, for profit from, you know, multi-billion dollars a year to a couple of million dollars a year. So I feel like I have a very broad perspective, uh, an expert in the the federal government process and how to uh, build proposals that are compliant, competitive, and maximize companies' probability win. Yeah. And, you know, not only do you know about that stuff, you know, I watch you on LinkedIn and you and I comment on each other's stuff all the time. And you also have a really great grasp of just business practices. I like when I can bring somebody on who has an expertise like this in Price to Win, but you also know a more of a holistic approach to growing a business and those sort of things. And so I think the advice we're going to hear today is not just specifically how to get a number, but some of the other things and business decisions that go with it, especially from some of the things that we've kind of shared back and forth before the podcast. I know we're going to touch on a few of those. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about this one because I feel like pricing is out of everything there is in the government, this is the one that just destroys a lot of companies. I, I was talking to somebody the other day and this guy was like, Mike, I didn't realize I had added in one of my spreadsheets a number twice and it was making all of my stuff 6% higher than it should be. And I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, how many times you were so close, but you were within a couple of percentage points. Had you fixed that, you had won. And then on the flip side, I'm talking to clients and they're like, hey, we're winning but we're not making any money and I don't understand it. And I look at their stuff and I'm like, well, you're only, you know, looking at five, six, seven percent profit when the average in your market is 12, 15, 18 percent. That's why you're struggling. And so pricing is one of those things that is a make or break thing for so many people. And so that's why I wanted to come on and talk price to win. Before we get into some of your approach and all of that kind of stuff, can you just tell people that don't understand this, what is price to win? Generally, price to win helps companies win contracts by increasing their probability of win by interpreting competitive signals out there, really scrutinizing the specific requirements of an RFP and building a price that is not only compliant and getting the data that you need to support your story, but also it helps to focus on opportunities where you really need to be focusing on and helps you determine which ones to kind of let go. I mean, we all know how many opportunities there are on any any given basis 
from you know what used to be FBO and now you know beta.sam.gov. But I mean, the, the opportunities are, are literally endless for a unique business. So you know what we try to do is is help companies strategize how you know what exactly what kind of buyer they're looking for. You know whether it's a specific agency or a specific funding office or contracting office. You know and look at those patterns uh, in the past from those buyers and funding offices and and look for trends. And, and calculate things like average rates. How do they do their procurements? Is it like the lowest price technically acceptable LPTA? Uh, in which case I would advise companies, what we're trying to do there is go for a penny lower than our other competitors, because all things being equal, that's exactly what price to win is. Now on the, the more nebulous side of that is what they call best value trade-offs, which gets into a lot more of the, um, the complexities of how do you quantify value as a relates to a specific RFP, how do you maximize your company's offerings and capabilities that align to that RFP to maximize your scoring of that? And in which case, you know, a competitive analysis is much more important important to kind of add in those other factors that a lot of companies are really unaware of. So, so for example, when they make these best value trade-offs, there's a percentage that each agency has some guidance. Some of them I've seen up to about 30% where they're willing to trade a larger price for a more capable solution that you know better maximizes mission success. On the other hand, on a lot of these long-running services contracts, frankly, some of these services are viewed as commodities. So which case it may be LPTA or maybe best value trade-off. At the end of the day, a lot of those trade-offs are, hey, this is acceptable enough and they're going to award to lowest price. So a lot of different factors in there, but I think, you know, the RFP and, and before that, you know, the capture phase, the the, the pre-solicitation, the draft RFPs, uh, you know, you can interpret a lot of information from those things. And I think if you have a price to win process in place prior to when RFPs come out, it, it really helps companies, again, focus on opportunities. They have a much better shot of winning and, you know, cut loose of the ones where it's basically a big time waster and you know resource spender for no no value at all yeah and you know you mentioned there about having this strategy in place before an rfp comes out i feel like a lot of companies where they make the biggest mistake is they come up with a pricing strategy and that strategy is applied globally to everything they do and they're like hey well this is our you know our wrap rate this is our this and this is our that and that's just the way it is and this is how we're going to approach every single contract and they don't necessarily look at the uniqueness of every single contract they sit down they bid their normal thing and they're like why why did we miss it What's wrong here versus saying, hey, you're not going to be competitive if you use your normal formula on this particular contract because of all of these other factors, you know, looking at the agency and their past solicitations and different things like that. Whereas you may go to another agency and yeah, that's going to work for them, but you should still look at all of the data uh, surrounding that agency to make sure, <laughs> because even though we think it's the right thing, it's worth looking at some outside factors to make sure 
sure we have the right price. And so I, I like that concept of, hey, every time you approach this, you need to take in all the factors, not just, well, this is my pricing chart. I was on a call the other day with somebody, and one of the things that I thought that he said was amazing about pricing was the fact that, hey, just because the, the government's asking you to negotiate your rate doesn't mean it has to end with you actually lowering your rate. They're asking you to negotiate. There's little nuggets like that that we don't often know, but I think one of the reasons the government asks you to negotiate your rate is, number one, they have to, but number two is you haven't done a good job justifying your rates. That's the other side of it is you're going to push the government to either go with somebody else or request some things that they shouldn't because you haven't done a good job justifying those things through your process. It's not clear to them. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that on when it comes to the government and kind of what they're looking for in justifying a rate. What are maybe a couple of things that that you uh, have seen in the past that are mistakes and and how do I overcome those? Well, that's that's an excellent question and observation. I mean, I think what's lost a lot and you know, fellow data miners like myself is context and timing are everything. So any specific RFP you're looking at, right? There's, a, there's an urgency that you know, we may or may not know about. How quickly does the start date arrive from when this RFP is being solicited? Is this a recompete? Are they on track with, uh, like put yourselves in the contracting officer's perspective, right? So those are my main clients, you know, when I was working on the private side. Make it easy as possible for them to award contracts to you by keeping your your language and your cost narrative clear and concise. Don't add any extraneous stuff that isn't being asked for. You know, it's not a subjective document in a sense like the technical is. Like the cost volume is basically a lot of verbatim, a lot of redundancy because of what section L generally says. So you're kind of repeating yourself uh, over and over again. When I first started doing this, I thought it was just basically math right? Okay. I have a direct labor, which I can mess with. And all the way at the end, I can mess with the fee. Those are the two variables that when I first started off, I thought that I can only manipulate as, as a price. When I, when I founded price to win, I started realizing a lot of these companies don't have forward pricing rates with DCA. So there's a lot more flexibility out there from the industry perspective of what a wrap rate could be. And a lot of times some of the companies that I support uh, they're going after contracts that could basically, you know, 5x their annual revenues. And, and in that case, you know, what, what we could do is perform an impact analysis on what those indirect rates would look like. So say, you know, I'm, I'm supporting a company and, you know, their CPAs and, and their um, uh, balance sheets are, are indicating that they're about, a, you know, one eight wrap rate, right? And that would assume like a, you know, 8%, 10% fee, something along those lines. What we could do is, you know, take a look at the expected revenues based off of any given award. And, you know, you, you would have some increased, uh, you know, general and administrative costs and and likely some overhead, but the fringe rates generally stay the same. It's the really the drivers of doubling or quadrupling your revenues. Uh, you know, there are going to be some support staff that are necessary to, you know, execute those contracts in a compliant way. Uh, what I think is important too is price to win isn't necessarily a driver to get to the lowest price, but oftentimes we have to have a bid strategy on one hand. That's where we put forward to the client. That's what we explain. 
But on, on the back end and internally, you know, we have an execution strategy as well. So, you know, the government RFP asks for what it asks for. I think a lot of times people overthink it and say, well, I know this customer and this is how they're going to expect us to work. That's fine and good. And that's good inf information. However, the RFP says what it says. Any deviation from that is a huge risk uh, that, you know, decreases, uh, you know, your probability of win. And again, think about it from the source selection board and the contracting officer's perspective. Make it easy for them to award contracts to your company. I think that's really good advice. And when I'm thinking through all of this, one of the challenges that I do see a lot of people not think through is what you just said, looking at if we were to win this five-year contract, how is that going to look on our balance sheet? How are we going to play this thing out? Because that could definitely factor into you adjusting some costs, especially if it's a 5X to your revenue. That's going to change some factors in the company quite quite quickly there. So it's good to be able to look at all of these issues that, that are here. So talk to me a little bit. I know we, we've kind of been talking around this. Talk to me a little bit more about that top-down approach. What are some of the data points or things you're looking for when you are trying to help a company create their price-to-win strategy? Well, the top-down approach essentially is trying to forecast what the government's budget is, what they expect to pay, what uh, what's commonly referred to as an independent government estimate or IGE. That can be uh, inferred from a number of different sources. Uh, a lot of folks use GSA Calc, uh, where you know it's an aggregate uh, of all the GSA schedules that are out there, specific to each labor category. A lot of folks from the government do that. Matter of fact, I just started chatting with a guy on Reddit who does IGEs for the government, and he was telling me all the, the challenges that he has, particularly uh, with level of effort. You know, how many bodies, how many resources does the government expect it to take to get the job done? The reason why the government does that, I believe, is to kind of help the industry determine to get a, a narrow range of competitors and prices, right? When when you have an IGE, that's what the government likely expects to pay. And that's basically what sets your ceiling in, in price to win. Switching back to uh, the question that I don't believe I answered satisfactory before, when you are, you know, trying to document, you know, your rates, normally I have, you know, Mike on my payroll and Mike's paid $100 an hour. So that's the best factor for the government to determine fair and reasonableness. If I don't have that, I have Mike's signature on a letter of intent where it's $100 an hour. I bid $100 an hour. That's easy for the government to justify. Well, I don't have any of those two sources. Then it gets a little bit more ratcheted up on the risk perspective from the government's perspective in a sense that, okay, well, is there any historical data that maps to the, you know, these labor categories? And, you know, we have experts that mine, you know, Bureau of Labor Statistics have accounts with ERI and uh, Mercer and Culpepper and some of those other HR agencies that are HR companies that help companies determine if they're fairly compensating their employees, but also to validate pricing. The government loves uh, having a pay for resource that validates that. And the justification basically is I, I've never had an issue with justifying it from one of those paid sources. Uh, I, I actually been using a lot of Bureau of Labor Statistics data in particular because my dealings with contracting officers, they will actually enjoy it when you use their own data back them because there's an mm. inherent value that, you know, us as taxpayers is very important. 
there's a lot of resources that go into producing this data. So I always feel it's a very good story to tell them, hey, we went to the Bureau of Stab Labor Statistics. We also use these other sources to validate it. And we took an average of four or, you know, we took this one based upon the competitive scenario that we're dealing with on the specific opportunity. So you, you bring up a, a question here. I had a client and this was just a few months ago. They said, Mike, we are on a contract. We're the incumbent and this is up for recompete. The client knows that there are probably only three people in the world that can do this job. And these three people in the world have PhDs in this field. They have 20 plus, 30 plus years experience each. We actually own all three of those people. They're on our payroll. The rate is say $200 an hour for this person, but they are saying it should only be like $90 an hour. And they're, they're totally full. And like this person has been on the contract. So they know number one, how hard it's going to be to replace them with somebody. They know that rate is totally out of the ballpark. What do we do? And I have to imagine this is coming up a lot right now because you know there, there aren't a lot of people in the market for some of these more specialized things. What do you tell a client that's in a situation like that, where it may not be that great of a difference in the pricing, but clearly there's something wrong with the government's expectations and reality of the pricing. How do you bridge that gap with a narrative or, or what do you do? What's your advice on that? For starters, I think the company didn't do a very good job of positioning themselves or tailoring that solicitation to uh, play to their strengths. Uh, I have dealt with situations where, you know, you're dealing with, you know, someone with a very, a very specific, unique search that only, you know, a handful of people in the entire world have. From that standpoint, justifying that can be difficult, but I would basically say that there's really no comparable data for these folks, or it would be mm. off the 99 percentile of everything, right? So when you know you look at these, uh, you do digging into you know direct labor sources, they always kind of put it into quartiles, right? 25 percent, 50 percent, 75 percent, and then at the tail end of those, uh, not so much on the low end, right, because of minimum wages, but on the high end, that could go all the way up to 500. Okay. Right. I had a client that um, had folks that were, I think the guy was about 270K, uh, again, for very unique capabilities that, you know, AWS, uh, there are certs unique to AWS, Amazon uh, Web Services. And there were only like 15 certs that AWS had granted at that level. So, you know, again, it, it's, it's supply and demand, right? There's only three or 15 of those people in the whole world. And, and honestly, this was a, um, a classified contract. The those folks, you know, government contractors are competing with other companies, both, you know, commercial and you know, government contractors. And so it getting more exceedingly difficult for companies, especially, you know, in the post COVID era, hopefully uh, that we're in, but you know, the, the labor markets have really gone a little bit haywire. You see that in inflation indices and things like that. Uh, so again, you know, somebody with the limited amount of certs, remind them again of supply and demand, one of the fundamental laws of economics. And, you know, you're demanding these services, but there's only, you know, four people in the whole world that can do them. So expect to pay a huge premium for that. You know, you're off the 99th yeah. percentile and then some. So uh, again, it depends on the, the unique situations, but, you know, throw in as much facts as you can to tell the story that uh, helps add credibility to your pricing and your methodology. For yeah. That. Yeah. That's good advice. And I think in this situation, I think the contracting officer had gone over to like one of the calc tools and was like, well, it should only be, you know, it says a senior, whatever should only be this. I'm like, yeah, but you can't put in the tool, the uniqueness of this individual you're 
looking at. You're actually looking more along the lines of this person, and you're looking at the wrong one, and then all the other stuff you were saying there. Uh, but I, I do again, just to, just just to add on what you were saying. I'm sorry to interrupt. The uh, you know that's past performance data. That's historical data, right? And anybody that you know plays a stock market, you know, past performance doesn't indicate future success. It's the same sort of deal, right? So most labor sources are still you know a year or two old, and a lot many of them haven't really been updated, you know, since COVID really started. Yeah. Uh, you know, showing its facts. So, uh, you know, again, you got to take the data that you have and then make some assumptions that, again, best align to, you know, your strategic value and your technical solution to, max again, maximize your probability. Right. Yeah. And, and bottom line, you've got to build a case, right? I mean, bottom line, you've got to build a case for that. And in this situation, they didn't want to lose Bob or whatever his name was. Like, they didn't want to lose him. He's, the, you know, one of three people in the world that could do this. And he had been working on the contract for five years. So they're not going to get rid of him. They were just like, hey, you know, the rates should be <laughs> whatever. Like, so let, let's really build the case. So uh, yeah, as we're winding down here, talk to me a little bit about the bottom up approach and how that factors into price to win. Well, the bottom up approach is basically taking the unique cost elements, you know, and you really can't do that until you have a pretty well-defined draft RFP or, or an RFP. So the bottom up approach is basically, uh, you know, taking a look at each one of those individual labor categories or um, basis of material bombs and finding data points that support those uh, and getting ranges for direct labor and, uh, you know, materials, whatever's asked for. So it's really kind of a waste of time until you have specific guidance from via draft RFP or, or an actual RFP, you know, a lot of times they'll say, okay, these labor positions, you know, here's the, the job duties and, you know, here's the minimum amount of years experience and the, the minimum amount of education requirements that are necessary. So once you have that kind of th those details for specific, you know, labor categories, or you have a, you know, the bomb where they're asking for monitors, printers, or, you know, sometimes you're, you're making stuff up, you know, depending on what, what is being asked for ultimately by the, by the, uh, the and customer. So once you have the direct labor estimates, then, you know, you kind of, a lot of companies have their own wrap rates that are kind of solidified, for, you know, via a forward pricing agreement with, with DCAA. Those ones are a little bit more challenging and problematic to kind of maneuver around uh, to change. Uh, occasionally, you know, companies will have some sort of event that happens or they're over or under running and, and may make a, a kind of a mid-course correction there. Then profit is the other the whole reason for this is to kind of understand where other companies, your competitors may be. So you have your bottom line number. You you should have a very good idea of what it costs your company. And you also need to be abreast of what's going on with the overall industry and specifically, you know, your competitors on any given opportunity. Uh, so the bottom up approach kind of gives you your low end of the, you know, PTW range, right? You have the low end of what what you can do it at, at your cost and the top end of what the government expects to pay. And in between that range is kind of where companies need to figure out where they want to bid based upon how bad they want to win it, what their profit objectives are, and, you know, sort of other things that are unique to each company. Yeah. You know, I, I think one of the challenges for every small business is number one, if I am an IT company, I'm really good at IT. 
I don't even necessarily know how to run a business that sells IT services because I'm an IT company and that's my focus. So that's a traditional problem that we have is we don't even necessarily know the fundamental business stuff. Now you're asking me to become an expert at research and data, you know, reading the data, the tea leaves, whatever you want to call it. How do I figure out all those things? And I, I don't necessarily think it's a lack of want to, but just the knowledge of how to, like you said, they're looking at the competitors and saying, hey, these are the three companies that are most likely to compete on this because, oh, one happens to be the prime. This one is also selling to the agency. This one has talked to us about teaming on this opportunity. So I know we're up against these three companies. What are their rates are going to be? How do I find that? So I, I think companies have a lot of those questions and that's where they stumble is, hey, I'd love to know that information. I don't know where to look. I don't know how to look. I don't know how to factor that into my rates. And then especially if I'm looking at their rates, how do I justify if mine are higher, all those sort of things. But that is all part of what you're talking about here with price to win and and how it works. So if I were to leave this podcast with one thing. It's understanding the importance of having a data geek like yourself on the back end to look at all of these things in all of these places that I don't even know to look in order to put the whole picture on the table so that I can make the best educated guess at my number. Because ultimately that's what it is, right? It's the best educated guess at what's going to help us win this without being either more expensive or so much more expensive that we can't justify it. That's that's where I'm trying to get with this. So that's my big takeaway there of all these companies that are already trying to do their stuff, like bringing an expert to look at this, even if it's just a couple of times a year to help us figure out, are we on the right track? Are we making the right decisions? Are we looking at the right data? And definitely on a big proposal that's really important, it doesn't make any sense to submit that without looking at all this stuff. To blindly submit with just a a guest price, it just doesn't make any business sense. So that's my big takeaway from what we've been talking about. Do you have any final thoughts for people about Price to Win? Yes, uh, you made all excellent points there. I think, you know, what people need to understand is Price to Win is an art and a science, right? Like Mm. the science part is the math, the calculations, you know, the formulas. uh, Do they conform with uh, Section B, you know, the CLINs and, uh, you know, the government's spreadsheet methodology? The science or the art part of it is you know, the intelligence gathering activities, right? Like, okay, so how do you know which competitors you're going after? Obviously the incumbent, you can look at people who are interested, interested parties that are, you know, logging in, which I would never recommend doing by the way, but you know, which companies are showing up at the trade shows and just, you know, basic intelligence gathering, pay attention to details, who's asking questions and solicitations and on draft RFPs, get a feel for how many authors you think are writing those questions. I like it when the government doesn't consolidate them because it gives you a better idea of, you know, the amount of competitors and things about interpreting wrap rates. Like that's where you start making a lot of assumptions. And again, that's what we have to do when we're doing these things. Like uh, public companies, it's a little bit easier because they have quarterly SEC filings. So you can make some pretty good logical, you know, a tighter range of that than compared to a a smaller private or a a private company that that doesn't have those reporting requirements. So what you really got to do is, again, go identify that the buying patterns, who's winning those contracts. And, you know, you can reverse engineer old proposals. You can have a pretty good range of like SCA work, right? Uh, you can, you know, pretty much infer what wrap rates are for that winner. 
But a lot of it is just, you know, basic intelligence gathering, figure out, you know, the sources that are giving the good intel, you know, develop them and work them. Another one that the GAO protest docket, there's a lot of good information. If you can, you know, specify agencies or stuff like that, you can get a really good idea of the trade-offs that are made by those source selection boards. Hmm. Uh, all that stuff is public information. I think that's probably about it. Another thing you could do is, um, you know, figuring out who else is recruiting for those specific positions that you're looking for. If you're the incumbent, advise your team of employees, is anybody contacting you? And, you know, kind of give them a script of what to say, who's contacting you, what kind mm. of questions are they asking? Because again, I, I can go and make phone calls too. You know, it's it's not terribly difficult to figure out which folks are in there and, and make calls, you know, like, hey, I'm a recruiter. What, you know, what, what are you making? And, and people talk. If you can find a good icebreaker and, you know, ask good questions, uh, it's amazing the, the amount of intelligence you can find. If you're, you know, again, you know, nice and cordial about it, but also know exactly what you're trying to mm. do. Yeah, th that's really great advice. It, that's why I said at the start here, just some really sound business advice, because I don't think people, for the most part, talk to their people and say, hey, if a recruiter calls you, number one, I really want to know about it. <laughs> but number two, here's what you should say. That That's a really big piece of advice. That's a huge takeaway there right towards the end of the podcast. So thank you for all this advice, John. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, as always, all of your contact information is on the website. So if anybody wants to reach out to John, you can go hit the website and check that out or reach out to either one of us. And uh, just thank you again. I really appreciate you for coming on and talking about all this today. Yeah, anytime, Michael. I, I appreciate the uh, the, com uh, the the content you guys provided, RSM Federal. And you know, thank you for the opportunity being on this podcast today. Hope you all have a great day. Thanks for listening to Game Changers for Government Contractors. For a full list of episodes and other resources, be sure and check us out on the web at www.rsmfederal.com slash gamechangers.